Welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And even before we were recording, you were breathlessly regaling me with your take on, is it the uh, the Revenge Squad? <laughs> close, so close. It's the Avengination Station. <laughs> Actually, it's if you want to be technical, Marvel's Avengers Endgame. I want to hear all about it. Don't leave anything out. Do you really, though? <laughs> I want to hear your joy. All right. Uh, well, yeah, so I'm all in on the Marvel movies. I don't love them all, but I like them all, and I love a lot of them. And this is a very satisfying... This is. I'm not the first person to say this, but this is the season finale of like big dumb movies. So this is, you know, you're invested for 11 years, 21, 22 movies, and it all comes together. Uh, It's, it's great. It's fan service of the highest order. It's delightful. It's um, entertaining. And uh, my only complaint is that it's a time travel movie and those are never really, because you just can't think about them too much. Yeah. And in this case, it's, it's especially, I don't know if it's egregious, it's fine, but it's time travel that specifically allows them to jump back into the other movies so that you get, you know, a roundup of all your favorites and they go back and there's cute little follow-ups and remixes and they run into themselves and all that kind of stuff. And it's indulgent and silly, but if you're into it, it's pretty satisfying. What do you think about it as a kind of the new world of Hollywood and making movies that we have these huge franchises and we know they're going to make you know a hundred bajillion dollars worldwide so these are the kind of movies that studios want to make and market rather than what used to be popular well if that's the angle then i i probably lament it because i happen to be in on these and i and i dig it but when i think about any of the other attempts at cinematic universes or just in general the blockbuster culture and and the way that what it takes the only movies that are sure things are these big giant movies that cost 200 million but they make 700 million that's unfortunate and we're feeling the effects of it i don't wish that these movies would go away and not exist i just wish that we could serve all kinds of audiences and we could uh, give opportunities to all kinds of filmmakers and it almost makes me think that studios are just in it for the money I mean, yeah, that's not, it's not fair, Dan, but I see what you're saying. I know it's not fair. What, I, what I'm saying is that if I have an opportunity to make money and it's just fine, let's see, in any, say my job, and I'm well-liked for it and I can pay my bills with it, that's great. But then say there's an opportunity where I can make an obscene amount of money doing basically the same thing. I might yeah. choose to do that because that's available to me. Right, right. And the people who used to enjoy my services now no longer will. And I feel that that has happened a bit where I feel there there used to kind of be a supply and demand thing going on between the public and studios where the stuff that became the stuff of pop culture and the movies we all shared together and became beloved, the studios would make them. They would finance them and give the green light and it would happen. And the highest grossing movies often would be the Oscar nominees that year where art and commerce were meeting just a bit. Mm-hmm. And now that never happens or rarely happens. Mm-hmm. These hugely, wildly uh, financially successful movies are not the Oscar nominees typically. You know, Black Panther yeah. notwithstanding and things like that. I guess uh, American Sniper isn't the same kind of movie, but 
it was an Oscar movie that made a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And we've got these movies that are kind of part, um, part fantasy, part virtual reality, part video game, part movie. And that's not to put them down for what they are. People love them and really enjoy them and cry at the end and all the great stuff that should happen when you're at the movies. But these are the only kind of movies, it seems, that studios are really excited about making. And the middle grade movie is moving to places like Netflix and Hulu. And now, I mean, we haven't gotten to movie headlines yet, but the, um, the Academy is, I I feel made the right call Mm -hmm. in acknowledging that there is a new space for the kinds of movies that we used to honor as the best of American cinema. Yeah. And I feel like the other side of that is that you can, the only way that you can kind of make strides in the other direction is if you're a kind of an auteur with a cult of celebrity around you. So you either have to have a giant property that already has a built-in fan base of self-proclaimed geeks, uh, or you have to be a Jordan Peele or somebody like that. And you have to kind of, you know, earn your way into, into that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, Jaws best, you know, Mm-hmm. summer movie blockbuster type and also a oscary movie and i, I don't know <laughs> i'm not doing this uh for the sake of jaws sure but it just was something that came to my mind yeah so how many stars uh end game three and a half stars okay that's that's yeah. a healthy number yeah dan did you see anything in the last week i didn't wow. i i know the the best thing that I can offer to a conversation is that I started watching FX's Fosse Verdon this week. Oh, yeah. I need to catch up with that. I haven't watched it yet. I'm not quite sure what I think of it yet. You know, I think that it is, I mean, it's not that I think it is incredibly niche You need a little bit of background uh, in that theater era to understand what they're talking about some of the time. Mm-hmm. Because each episode is kind of a standalone era in their relationship. So you're looking at the time that he was directing Cabaret. And then you're looking at the time that she did Damn Yankees, which is earlier. And it's in and out of time. And unless you kind of understand the chronology of their careers, I think it can be a little bit hard to follow. Yeah. But that aside... Um, the performances are wonderful. Um, Michelle Williams embodies Gwen Verdon unbelievably, hmm. um, because Gwen Verdon is a is a character and a real caricature. You think of actresses in the golden era; they're the ones up in on Sardi's wall, and their caricatures quite resemble how they are on stage. You have to be larger than life mm-hmm. um, in pre amplification theater time, and really to stand out, you have to be kind of weird and quirky and interesting. So it's easy to make performances of these women kind of draggy and that's not what she does at all she makes her seem like a real person and you can totally see Gwen Verdon in her and she just seems um so so natural Hmm. so natural and she's she's really really good and I'm learning a lot about their lives and how they really inspired each other creatively and that was the only way the relationship seemed to work Mm -hmm. because he was completely self-destructive as we knew. And there are some interesting um, parts of her story that I didn't know that um, underscore why she might stick with him or at least not walk out completely. 
that she's looking for a level of uh, stability that she didn't always have. Mm -hmm. And it's just fun to see um, stage and screen character folks step into famous people's shoes. You know, someone's playing Patty Chayefsky and Liza Minnelli and Cy Fuhrer and all these bit parts. It's just a lot of fun. A review of the first episode that I heard on another podcast expressed some concern that the Verdon character would would not have as much agency as they hoped for, that they felt in that first episode she was kind of just there to be a foil. I didn't hear any follow-ups on that. Do you feel that's a valid concern or is that... Uh... You know, I had heard that as well, and I'm not sure what that means because they're trying to enact what really happened. And so she didn't really have agency mm -hmm. in life. And this idea that, oh, I really wish Gwen Verdon would have acted differently. Well, you can give her a call beyond the grave and right. tell her about her life mistakes. And she shouldn't have been yeah. such a doormat for Bob Maybe Lawson, the Avengers but... can do some time travel magic right. straighten this out. Right. Yeah. I mean, because she just is who she is. And these are the things that happened according to what we know mm -hmm. of her life. And I think that she stands up to him in a way that I think that she probably did in life. And at the same time, she stuck by him. Um, they were estranged for, what, 15 years before he died. They never divorced. They stayed in each other's lives, but were not living as a married couple. Mm -hmm. And part of me looks at that and says, yeah, that's kind of weird. Why didn't you cut that cord? But that's not what happened. Yeah. I Did also saw else? High Life, directed by Claire Denis, an interesting cast, her first fully English language movie and a sci-fi movie. I'm fascinated by art house or or directors who don't usually work in genres doing an exercise in a genre. Like Jim Jarmusch has got the zombie movie coming out. So seeing a director who is very visionary and weird and challenging do sci-fi but almost have disdain for the sci-fi elements the, the the spaceship they're flying around in is basically a box and uh it's aggressively unpleasant and and strange and told out of time and the characters are all awful but i gotta say i like a movie that commits to its weirdness and the weirdness of high life goes deep and uh un unravels itself in a very peculiar and specific way and i was never bored i was always interested and i think that there's some kind of payoff at the end so i recommend high life okay that sounds like something i'd go see yeah well do we want to talk headlines do you see anything mm -hmm. um noteworthy i think the uh academy's rules uh announcement is interesting um i forget when that dropped that was in the last week wasn't it yeah yeah so notable among it um less interesting uh makeup and hair now is going to be five nominees it used to be three which is kind of strange why just that one would be restricted that way. Yeah. I think it maybe had something to do with the number of eligible films on the shortlist. Mm -hmm. But it seems like there's enough of that kind of work out there that you could easily find five nominees. Sure. In a given year. The other thing was the change of best foreign film is now best international film. Mm -hmm. Which sounds... It's curious, yeah. A little more PC... I guess mm -hmm. at the same time, I think it muddies the waters because the rules for the award haven't changed. Mm -hmm. 
it has to be a film that is primarily not in English. And we have a lot of international films that are in English, say from England, that don't compete in this category for that reason. So they're not suddenly going to be put in there, but it's just understood that these are non-English films. And then the last thing was that you only need a day's theatrical release before releasing on streaming services as well, which is a big, big win for Netflix. A rebuke of Spielberg. It really was. And now Spielberg's like, oh, that's not what I meant. Oh, I didn't intend any of that. Oh, okay. Sorry if I was misunderstood (laughs) by you. So anyway, Netflix continues to be in. Great. Now they just need to make some more good movies. This is the only year that this is a relevant thing because they had a great movie. Right. They haven't had a great movie before. And there's a and it's also a foreign language rule change too after a Yeah. foreign language Netflix win. Uh let's see. On Variety, a lot of news about Bond 25. Boy, that just everything that comes out about the James Bond franchise lately is just angst and nobody seems happy. Been through a few directors and but now it looks like the cast is actually coming together. They should try to get Zachary Levi. Sure. I thought those uh, Idris Elba rumors were pretty sweet. Oh, yeah. that would be even better. And isn't Rami in yeah, as a villain? Yeah, that's pretty good. He's good Bond. Or, or, is, he the bon, or is he the Bond girl? Uh, I think it may be the first combination. <laughs> Bond girl, <laughs> Bond villain. I think that I've seen a James Bond film before. Yeah. Some of them are quite excellent. I think perhaps Ooh. even in the theater. I guess of the recent ones, Casino Royale is the only one I consider to be great. The other ones were okay. I feel like I've I saw Casino Royale. That wasn't. I mean, that wasn't. No, that's really the farthest recent, back. That's right? the first that was... Daniel Craig, the first rebooted one. But, yes, uh, into the into yeah. the two thousands. Perhaps and then Skyfall was pretty good, be... pretty good as well. All right, Dan. Then let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Gosford Park. All right, let's do see it. ya. Welcome back, Josh and Dan. This week's movie, uh, I guess it was my pick, so I get to introduce it. Gosford Park is a 2001 collaboration between Robert Altman and Julian Fellows. I believe Bob Balaban was also involved in the inception of the project with Fellows writing and Altman directing. It's um, Downton Abbey plus Robert Altman plus murder mystery, but kind of minus the murder mystery. Famously, Altman referred to this as a who cares who done it. <laughs> like uh, a huge cast full of favorites. Many of my favorites, Maggie Smith, Richard E. Grant, Stephen Fry, Helen Mirren, Kelly McDonald, Bob Balaban. And those are just, those are just the favorites. There's Clive Owen, Michael Gambon, Ryan Philippe, Kristen Scott Thomas, Tom Hollander, Jeremy Northam. It's a Robert Altman cast. It's a huge cast. Derek Jacoby, Emily Watson, uh, Eileen Atkins, Alan Bates. It's a group of wealthy Brits, most of them, I think, related to each other, congregating at Michael Gambon's manor, stately manor, for a hunting party, along with their maids and valets. And so we spend time... Upstairs, we spend time downstairs, and then uh, there is a murder, an inspector calls, and then not much happens. So 
I saw this back in 2001 in the theater with my wife, Shireen. We'd been married about a year and uh, learning that we didn't agree on movies very much. She hated this film. But I think at the time I pretended to like it because I was like film guy and she was just so like put off and I was amused by it. Watching it this time, I really like it. Not just like because the cast is cool, but I really enjoyed watching it unfold. And I don't know, it has an attitude and a style that I found kind of exhilarating. Dan, what's your history with with uh, Gosford Park? Well, similar to yours, I saw it when it was released and I knew it was going to be one of the award movies that year. So I went and I found it enjoyable enough. And then that was about the end of that story for me back then. I could barely remember what it was even about. And when I was sort of searching around in preparation for watching it again, I read the whole thing about Downton Abbey connection. I was like, well, of course. Right. And now we're post Downton and Downton Abbey is so much more a part of, you know, my history of viewership than Gosford Park mm-hmm. was such that I can't really watch this movie apart from my, my love for Downton Abbey. It just yeah. looks the exact same. Like the house right. looks the same the dynamics between the people upstairs and downstairs um, between the supervisors and the servants. It is the exact same feel, but Uh, yes, I agree. We have, but we have, you might also have a, but well, the, but is to me, Altman in that you're just watching these conversations. I mean, this is just kind of who he is as a director, but watching these conversations unfold and you're, it's like, you're just stepping into it midway and mm-hmm. then your ear just hits another one and you feel like you're just sort of walking around this room um, of interesting party goers and not really putting everything together, but just, oh, you're like over, it's a movie you overhear instead of view. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so specifically, that's kind of what I really dig about this because I, we were into Downton Abbey for a few seasons and then we kind of bailed when it got, uh, when I think specifically at, was it season two or three when they killed off Dan Stevens' character? as an afterthought at the end of the season. But anyway, the, the car crash guy. Yeah. 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 We're not here to relitigate Downton Abbey, but um, <laughs> it got better. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard I'll... that was season one. I dare say, was it? Yeah. I think that was the end of season. I thought I made one. it to two or three. Wow. No, I think I made it to four, maybe even the final one. I don't think I watched mm-hmm. it finished though. All right. Well, okay. Not to no, no aspersions upon Downton Abbey and it's good name. But what I dig about this movie is what you get when Downton Abbey is kind of filtered through Altman because Mm -hmm. uh, you get the upstairs, downstairs. You get that same exact world. But to me, because of the way Altman, Altman's style to me like democratizes the, the story, meaning like in Downton Abbey type of a situation, and this is exactly why people watch it. It's not a mistake or a problem. But what you get is, even though it's it's got this critique of class, you have a kind of fetishization of the upstairs, of the wealthy. And then you also have like a lionization of the servants beneath. And it's just kind of playing those things to extremes. Whereas the Altman take by kind of weaving in and out and and the way that he kind of democratizes his cast, meaning that there's no like big hero moments and little supporting characters. Every, the, the scullery maids and the lords and ladies are all kind of 
have the same level of of personness in his world so that you're still highlighting the awfulness of the wealthy people and the inherent goodness of most of the people downstairs but to me it was a little more subtle and i enjoyed the way that he uh the way his style meshed with that julian fellows world yeah i felt i kind of disliked the people downstairs in gosford park Mm -hmm. whereas in downton abbey there are most of them are quite lovable yeah some become villainous because that's sort of part of the fun of Mm -hmm of Downton Abbey in this movie. I almost wonder what this movie would be without the murder Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. without um, Clive Owen and Helen Mirren being anything more than a stern supervisor, because I think that that would have been not an entirely different movie, but it would have been just as interesting kind of slice of life of this weekend or whatever it was where all of these lives converge in this one house and you're just sort of observing it and then they all go away as if it didn't happen right um right. i don't know that bringing up a backstory or some sort of intrigue about why this person was killed if that really added a ton it was it's a little bit long i think yeah. it could have done without that storyline sure. and also been an enjoyable movie mm-hmm. yeah a 90 or 100 minute version of this with all that extracted i think i agree even though i for some weird reason, I'm into the subversion of doing a genre, the mystery genre, and then kind of actively not pushing the buttons and not having the histrionics. In a weird way, I feel like there's some strange sense of justice in that, that there's no grand confessions. There's no chart. No one's charged with a crime in this movie. Uh, it's just kind of it just ends. And, and it's almost like the wealthy people leave not caring. And <laughs> the uh, you know, justice is kind of quiet. That's true. And. Uh, Stephen Fry is playing the the inspector. Yeah, I want to talk about him. Yeah, my my main association with him is that he's on an episode of Absolutely Fabulous, playing a surgeon who removes an acupuncture needle from Adina's toe, <laughs> and just couldn't care about his work less. <laughs> yeah, and that is who he has been for me since my teens. <laughs> nice. So him kind of coming through the door as a similarly ridiculous figure right. who's there to help, but not yeah, uh, is, is right in character with that. He's my least favorite element of the movie, even though he's one of my favorite British actors, he's That's always fair. a welcome site. He is just, he's a brilliant guy. He's a good writer. He's a good performer. I love black adder. I like, I like Stephen Fry a whole ton, but I feel like the wackiness of the inspector is a little bit turned up too much for this particular movie. And and again, that entire subplot feels unnecessary. So I feel like I was fascinated enough with the relationships and the connections and the backstories without him kind of bungling around and shining a light. I, I think there might be something there to the fact that he represents authority and he's just as bumbling and idiotic as any of the other like inbred wealthy, you know, lords and ladies. But I just, I liked everything. That was just what I liked the least. I think too about the, I agree with you. And I think about the murder. Why now? Yeah. Didn't Helen Mirren have an opportunity right. at any time through these years, through these decades? Was there, was it just right. that she was waiting for the house to be filled with suspects? Yeah. And how much was it all engineered? Did Was she pulling strings or was did she simply see that Clive Owen was there and so she made her move? 
I do not know. It's kind of the could... side effect of the movie not caring about the whodunit that it's still contrived. It's still a very if you if you tried to explain to somebody the circumstances of that actual murder and the crime scene and then how what the answer is, it sounds unbelievably convoluted. But you also have to remember that the movie like so casually tosses it off that it it really doesn't matter. It doesn't, and it's not centered because if we wanted to turn the genre of a whodunit on its head, then to me the the murder itself needs to be a little more centered. Is is not centering it the subversion? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because it just happens so late, and no, they don't get anywhere with it, and nobody cares, and right. then we're left. We're given this motivation that's supposed to be an emotional catharsis mm-hmm. that, for me doesn't land at all mm-hmm. it lands as an event in the drama that makes sense that she would have an emotional catharsis but the audience isn't there with her right because, I, I don't think because also we don't really care about her it also has to be said it's not a crime to stab a dead body is one of the dumbest <laughs> things i've heard in a movie about crime i think that intent has a lot right to do with it. <laughs> right that's a little silly, but this wasn't enough to bug me. Like all this stuff that is, there are a million questions swirling around it and it's not properly centered. I just, I got so kind of intoxicated by the movie's style and by the, 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 the shoot, the filmmaking style that I just kind of wanted to spend time there. And I was, I was satisfied by that aspect. Oh, I also, I intentionally mentioned the phrase an inspector calls in my initial remarks because in a very cosmetic, superficial way, there's some similarities here with that play. Were you? Is that before you came to Nyack that we did an Inspector Calls? That would have been before. Have you seen that that uh, show? There was also a BBC filmed version with David Thewlis recently. I'm familiar that it exists, but I've never seen yeah. it. So basically, it's uh, there is a death, and then an inspector comes to a wealthy family's home, and he questions everybody individually and backs them into corners until eventually it's revealed that they all have these dark connections to this poor little factory worker. It it, it comes down to a wealthy father, head of a household, who owns factories, who has been treating the young women in the factory you know, in a way that's very reminiscent of the uh, William, the Michael Gambon character in in this movie but the it's kind of the opposite treatment of the material because it's an extremely histrionic melodramatic movie very preachy play where literally it ends with the inspector pointing at the audience and kind of giving this very like liberal rant about the way you know about class stuff where that's all so buried and so quiet and in this movie it doesn't care about moralizing so much Um, But I did find it interesting how many kind of connections there were, almost as if that was maybe in their mind as a specific instance of what they were turning on its head. Yeah. And I think that I caught on to or caught on not to that, but caught on that that wasn't existent, like you're saying, that it's not hitting something hard over the head. But having watched so much Downton Abbey, I feel like gave me such an education and a preparation to appreciate this movie better for what it is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I understood what was going on socially in ways that the film isn't punching up. Right. But after watching many episodes where this way of life is explained to an audience that really does not understand this social organization at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel it that now in retrospect it prepared me to appreciate this movie better. Yeah. So do you think that Gosford Park holds up, Dan? I like it better 
than when I first saw it. I'm glad I did a rewatch because um, my Josh was like, well, what's it about? And I was like, I don't think it's about anything. Right. <laughs> like, there's some people and it's a house and you yeah. kind of sit there for two hours right. and watch them talk. It's not really about anything. No. I guess it's about British class or class in general, but all that subtext, I mean, all that's just the context, really context. That's when it is, but it's not really about that. It's just playing in that sandbox. Uh, it's it's even the same period as Downton Abbey, right? In between wars when... Yeah, Downton, I think, jumps time a little bit because it be, Downton began earlier. I think mm-hmm. Titanic time Right, all the so. World War One stuff is unfolding yeah, and this was later in the 30s. Right. Though I'm not sure when Downton ended. Mm-hmm. It could have been close to yeah. that. The way of ordering society is fascinating to me. And this idea that everyone needs a job and everyone needs a role. And so we put all that we concentrate all the wealth on the on some people in these manners and their job is to be at the top. And then we give other people jobs of serving them. Yeah. And that's how they're taken care of. It's kind of like the money at Downton is sort of everyone's money. You don't have access to it and mm-hmm. you don't have power, but it's like a, like an unfair commune. <laughs> right. That it, that it's really for everyone. And in our efficiency sort of culture where, Oh, well you don't need someone to dress you. That's ridiculous. Right. You can dress yourself. Yeah. And then you save, you save money on not having to do that. We're, so much more of a a nuclear entity and now i would sort of love to live in a big fancy house and really do nothing with my day sure except dress somebody in the morning and then launder their shit and hang out and sort of gossip yeah and get in feuds and quarrels with people that last months and years it sounds like just my (laughs) sort of place to thrive yeah well, and I felt like with Downton Abbey, I guess I assumed watching Downton Abbey that this was a show about when that system started to fall apart and become self-aware and right. and everything changed. And I think that's what it's saying. I'm now I'm not so sure if that was being injected kind of retroactively, like now we see it this way, or if that really if that really was a period of kind of unmaking. But um, if so, it's even more subtle in this movie. But it still kind of flavors some of those interactions and. The absurdity of being a footman or a valet or whatever and or maid, we're fascinated by that, but movies tend to assume that they were also fascinated by it, but it, it was just a, a way of life that eventually uh, went by the wayside. Well, people start to see the holes in it. Of course, it's completely unfair, and in Downton, people would come in from the outside and sort of be treated like threats. Mm-hmm. by the people on the inside simply because they speak their mind during a dinner how dare they yeah. uh, you know that there there is something not fair about this why should all of the wealth be concentrated how are you any better than the person who's serving you yeah and that's that's a that's a fair critique mm-hmm. not to mention the people with the wealth controlling the wealth inheriting the wealth whatever are usually uh cartoonishly bad stewards of their inheritance yeah, and it is, at least with the the what are they the Grantham family? I yeah, forget what I think the so. people in yeah. Downton are named. They are benevolent. They are they are kind. They see themselves as having a responsibility in their society of making life work for their staff. Mm-hmm. So if someone is ill, they are going to take care of them. If someone needs a surgery, or they they come alongside, not as a 
full member of the family, but as a member of the household. And I suppose a lord and whomever wouldn't have to be that way. But in Downton, they're portrayed that way. Now we've privatized everything and it's everybody for themselves. And so when wealth starts to get concentrated, the people who have the wealth are under no social obligation Mm -hmm. to share it and hold anyone else up with it, which is, you know, resources are limited. And we're seeing that we're seeing that play out now. And sometimes the Lord of the Manor gets murdered. Yes, he does. Need to call the bobbies. It reminds me of Sorry to Bother You a little bit. Did you see that movie? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And the idea that, oh, come work for this company and you have room and board and you just work all day and then you sleep in your bunk and you get your food. And for people struggling to pay their bills in our society, it was like, oh, it kind of sounds nice. Hmm. But that isn't very different from Downton. Right. Well, I uh, really enjoyed revisiting this movie. Um, to the point where I ordered the fancy pants, it's not officially Criterion, but the fancy Blu-ray that has the multiple commentaries and 15 deleted scenes and hopefully a better print than the one that was on Amazon. It's a little murky and dark, I thought. I'd be I'd be shocked if you didn't do that. <laughs> Don't always do that, but uh, I guess I frequently do. So I have an update about Redbox. Oh, please. I talked about Redbox and how I felt cheated that after I ordered something for streaming, I got a coupon that doesn't work for streaming. It only works for getting something at the box. Mm -hmm. So this weekend, uh, my son has a Nintendo Switch, and I discovered you can rent Switch games at the box. So why not try out a game that way for a dollar instead of 60? So he picked a game and took it home. And then in my inbox was a coupon for streaming. Oh wow! So that's how they do it. So it's they want just... you to be doing both things. So when you when you stream, you get a box coupon, and when you use the box, hmm. you get a streaming coupon. That's interesting. I wonder if how smart that is. I mean, they're so they don't want you to like buy all into one of their formats. They just want to be your go to for whatever it is that you want to do. I guess that's it. Maybe hmm. part of that keeps the box alive. All right. Well, touche, Redbox. Yeah, I'm totally going to hashtag or at them. <laughs> On, on, this, sure. on this post, on one of the things the young people are doing. Right. The TikToks and the Snapchats and the red boxes. It's a pleasure, as always, to speak with you, Dan. We have been Josh and Dan. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, oh, and our Twitter handle, at HoldsUpPod. Our music is by Jonah Rapino. Our podcast is by us. And the movies are by various people. And uh, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Bye. At first, he seems really upset that he is below and Balaban's above. And yeah. you know, he walks through the room and he has to pick up the dirty clothes and this isn't going well. And so it seems like the whole point was that I need to bring my young lover along and yet I can't say who he is. So he's going to be my valet and he's going to live below resentment brews. And we've got to find another way. Oh, he was an actor studying for a part. And so now right. he's be upstairs. Yeah. And, and that was, and that was a way to get him into that room last minute. Right. What was, but what was him throwing himself at uh, Kelly McDonald? I felt like he was trying to 
kind of like stick it to Balaban. And if he's going to be treated second class, mm-hmm. he's going to do all sorts of shameful and harmful and destructive things. Yeah. Is what, oh, we also didn't talk about Richard E. Grant, who doesn't have a whole lot to do, but is so good. This podcast is so homophobic. <laughs> yeah. I didn't tell you that. Forgetting, Sorry. forgetting all the gays. And we didn't talk about any of the black characters either. Right. Oh, yeah. 